You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 24, Stamp Act Repeal and the Declaratory Act. Before word of colonial resistance to the Stamp Act even made it back to London, King George removed Prime Minister Grenville from office. The change in leadership had nothing to do with the colonies. The king never really liked nor trusted Grenville. He gave Grenville the job in the first place because he had not been able to find anyone better to take it. Although Lord Bute had been forced from office, the king still relied on him for advice, and this drove Grenville nuts it was a major source of tension between him and the king. In 1765, shortly after passage of the Stamp and Quartering Acts, Grenville turned his attention to the Minority Heir to the Crown Act. Now, the king had no objection to the law itself. King George had young children. If he died before they reached adulthood, the act permitted the queen or someone else of the king's choosing to act as regent. It was a simple way to prevent any questions about who controlled the government in the event the country ended up with, let's say, a seven-year-old king. Parliament had passed a similar law when George III was still a minor and, after the death of his father, became the immediate heir to George II. The problem was how the law was passed. Lawmakers fought over whether the king's mother was eligible to select a regent. She was German, she had never been queen, and had never been formally naturalized by Parliament. So the House of Lords removed her from the eligibility list. There is some evidence that Grenville himself supported the exclusion of the king's mother. She was allegedly the mistress of his political enemy, Lord Bute. So giving her a say over the new regent would give Bute power. Bute might even become the regent. The whole affair deeply upset the king's mother, and the king had to use his influence in the House of Commons to get his mother added back into the law. Following that, the king decided that Grenville's role which was at best bumbling over whether or not the King of England's mother was English, was as good a reason as any to demand a new government. So the king gave Grenville the boot in July 1765, sending him back to being an ordinary member of the House of Commons. Once again, the king considered William Pitt for prime minister. But Pitt, once again, made too many demands. Eventually, the king settled on Charles Watson Wentworth, the second Marquess of Rockingham and we'll just call him Rockingham going forward. At age 35, Rockingham was rather young to be leading a government, though still eight years older than the king himself. He was a wealthy and established member of the nobility. He had served in the House of Lords since age 22 and was a political protege of Lord Newcastle. When Rockingham became Prime Minister, Newcastle, now 73 years old, would serve as Lord Privy Seal in the new administration. Although Rockingham took office in July 1765, Parliament would not meet again until the end of the year, 
and would not actually begin new business until January 1766. This delay gave London time to learn about and absorb the resistance in the colonies to the Stamp Act. Back in the colonies, the mobs had prevented any tax distributors from taking office. They had also destroyed all the stamped paper or forced it to be kept locked away where it could not be distributed. Either way, when November 1, 1765 came, local officials were unsure how to proceed. Newspapers, for the most part, continued to publish without stamped paper, though a few publishers took their names and addresses off the masthead in hopes of making it a little more difficult to prosecute them. In some cases, publishers had to be persuaded to publish under threat of having their homes or offices destroyed by mobs. The Sons of Liberty demanded they continue to publish on unstamped paper. It's the only occasion I know of where mobs were threatening a newspaper publisher for not publishing. This is not to say that the Sons of Liberty necessarily wanted a free press. One publisher in North Carolina, after succumbing to pressure to publish, permitted readers to submit letters for publication. Amidst the numerous letters in opposition to the Stamp Act, he published a single letter from a reader who supported parliamentary authority. For this infraction, he received various threats and two weeks later saw a colonial government, backed by the Sons of Liberty, close his press for printing a letter that they considered unacceptable. Merchant vessels found themselves in a more difficult situation. Ships could not be cleared to leave port without stamped documents, which were not available. Customs officials refused to clear any ships to leave the harbor at all, meaning trade came to a standstill, and out-of-work sailors roamed the city getting into trouble. Some colonies realized the futility of this within a few days and began the resumption of trade without stamped documents. They reasoned that because England had failed to make a distributor with stamped paper available, they could not put the law into effect. Other colonies, particularly Massachusetts, simply failed to do anything and let ships sit in the harbor for weeks. It was not until mid-December that Boston started clearing ships again. North Carolina held out until January. There, the governor offered to pay the stamp tax fees personally for any merchant who would sail. However, none of them wanted to be from the only colony using stamps, and they refused to go along. Even after the ports began allowing vessels to leave, the British Navy could still seize the vessels without stamped paper. One zealous naval officer in New York Harbor continued to block as many ships as he could from leaving. Although he could have seized them and taken them back to Halifax for condemnation, he simply forced the ships back into New York Harbor. The Navy did seize some vessels after boarding them at sea or in another English harbor. As a result, merchants did their best to avoid the Navy. They could not sail to England. The stamp tax was being enforced in the English colonies in the Caribbean as well. Initially, merchants were reluctant to sail there. Those ports, desperate for American trade, permitted them to enter and leave without stamped paper. So some trade resumed in the Caribbean. Mostly, though, ships traded with European countries or non-British colonies who could care less about the stamps. That was also illegal, but the chances of getting caught were lower. Now, courts were in an even more difficult situation. Judges appointed by the king were obligated to enforce laws regarding the use of unstamped documents in court. Many courts simply remained closed, refusing to do business. In Massachusetts, mobs demanded that the courts open and do business without the stamped documents. They used the arguments of the Virginia Resolves. The Stamp Act was beyond Parliament's authority and therefore should be considered void. 
a few courts opened for brief sessions to satisfy the mobs. Some handled older cases that did not require new paper in order to avoid the stamp tax issue, and then quickly closed again. Despite a few token openings, most civil court business came to a halt. The act did not affect criminal courts, so only civil courts were closed. In many cases, this benefited debtors in the colonies. They could not be sued by their creditors, most of whom were English merchants seeking repayment of debts. In a few colonies, courts opened without requiring stamp documents. Judges were risking removal by doing so. But even when the courts opened, lawyers were reluctant to proceed for fear of creating legal challenges that could result in them being sued for malpractice. So even when courts were open, litigation remained limited. Parliament almost immediately felt pressure to repeal the Stamp Act from all sides. The colonial petitions were easy enough to ignore, but others within England raised the same concerns. Newspaper articles appeared all over England from working-class people and merchants complaining about the Stamp Act and its effects. Many at the time, and even some later historians, thought that this was a groundswell of support among the English commoners for the colonies. In fact, the vast majority of these articles were written and sent by one man, Benjamin Franklin, still working in London as a colonial agent. He invented false names and sent articles to newspaper editors all over the country. Franklin's little fraud aside, there were a great many merchants suffering from the loss of trade and the inability of colonists to repay their debts. The truth was that trade without taxes had benefited England greatly. This trade-killing dispute was hurting the English economy, the English merchants, and those who worked for them. Not only were old debts not being paid, colonial merchants were not trading with England at all. No vessels arrived to buy new English goods for the colonies. Some colonies, or more accurately groups within the colonies, began developing non-importation agreements against England, though not nearly as extensive or organized as we will see later. Beyond the political popularity of such agreements, colonial ships did not want to travel to England with unstamped papers and risk the seizure of their vessels. The colonial economy was tanking, and no one had money to buy British imports anyway. The 1764 trade laws had already started an American initiative to become more self-sufficient and make more goods domestically. The anti-British feeling over the Stamp Act only increased this sentiment. This crash in trade was killing the London merchants. They were not selling their goods and were increasingly unable to collect debts in the colonies. Parliament received petitions and letters not only from London merchants, but from manufacturers all over England calling for the repeal of the Stamp Act. These petitions did not care about the rights asserted by the colonists. They simply focused on the fact that the law was destroying their trade and their ability to pay their workers. When the king addressed the opening of the new parliamentary session on December 17, 1765, he requested that Parliament do something about the mess in the colonies, but left it vague as to what ought to be done. Parliament's response was equally vague, promising to, quote, apply utmost diligence and attention to those important occurrences in America, end quote. Rockingham and his ministers viewed the Stamp Act as a mistake. Grenville would have had a much harder time backing down since the act was his idea in the first place. In fact, Grenville proposed a much more militant response to the king's message, stating that Parliament would take necessary measures to preserve the legal dependence of the colonies on England. 
Parliament rejected his proposal overwhelmingly. By the time Parliament got back to work in January 1766, Rockingham had already decided to repeal the act. He began reaching out to Pitt, who remained the leader of the opposition, to make a deal. Pitt, still annoyed that he was not Prime Minister himself, refused to cooperate. Pitt and his faction, of course, would support a repeal, but they did not want to look like they were cooperating with the leadership. With near-universal agreement in Parliament that something had to be done, there were three schools of thought on exactly what course to take. One, led by Grenville, argued that there might be some need for an amendment or tweaking, but that Parliament should not back down in the face of resistance. The Pitt faction believed that these taxes, as a matter of principle, were wrong and demanded immediate repeal along with a promise never to try anything like this again. In the middle were men who seemed to recognize that a repeal was necessary, but only as a matter of policy. This group wanted to retain the authority to tax the colonies, even if they chose not to exercise that authority at this time. Rockingham's position seemed to fall in this middle ground. If a bill could get the Pitt faction to support repeal, but not push away the overwhelming majority of members who believed that Parliament had the authority to tax colonies, it might find a reasonable compromise. Parliament had refused to consider any petitions that suggested it had no right to tax the colonies. For most members, Parliament authority was an issue beyond dispute. Most also accepted the reality that the Stamp Act was a complete failure and was damaging both the English and colonial economies. But they did not want to establish a precedent that mobs in the colonies could dictate to Parliament what its power and authority was. Any suggestion in any repeal that gave the indication that Parliament could not tax the colonies would have gone down to overwhelming defeat. Grenville led the opposition to any repeal. He argued before Parliament that the colony should not be rewarded for opposition to its authority. Backing down would only encourage more resistance and mob violence in the future. In response to this, Pitt finally rose to give his famous speech of January 14, 1766, in opposition to the Stamp Act. It praised colonists for standing up for their liberties and condemned the Stamp Act as an attempt to enslave the colonists. Pitt's support of the repeal actually made things harder for the administration. He essentially praised the colonies for refusing to accede to Parliament and called for an immediate and complete repeal. The administration knew that arguing Parliament had no right to levy taxes on the colonies would only cause members to dig in their heels. Rockingham wanted to stick to the much more practical argument that the law was hurting the English economy. As a result, the administration took no action in Parliament for another month, giving Pitt's opponents time to cool down and hear more from their constituents suffering under the current law. On February 3rd, Rockingham attempted to increase support for repeal by introducing the Declaratory Act, which was formally called the American Colonies Act of 1766. The act simply stated clearly that Parliament had authority to pass laws to bind the colonies, quote, in all cases whatsoever, end quote. Now, there was some debate over whether to add an explicit line on the authority to tax. That was rejected as needlessly provocative. Clearly, all cases whatsoever included the right to tax. At the same time, the Pitt faction tried to get the phrase, in all cases whatsoever, removed from the bill, and that amendment also failed. 
Finally, on February 21st, Henry Conway introduced the repeal of the Stamp Act into the House. Conway was the only member of Commons in the Rockingham administration. He was a member of the Pitt faction and was serving as Secretary of State for the Southern Department, which was responsible for North American affairs. Conway had voted against the Stamp Act the year before and seemed to agree with Pitt's sentiments. However, he held his tongue on colonial rights and simply focused on the economic need to repeal the Act. The administration spent the next few weeks providing Parliament with correspondence from colonial governors talking about the economic woes in America. They tried to cover over, as much as possible, any discussion about colonial views on the authority of Parliament. At Rockingham's prompting, several colonial agents in London submitted petitions, again focusing on the economic problems and not mentioning the dispute over the authority to tax. One agent, Benjamin Franklin, appeared before Parliament to answer questions. Franklin testified that the colonists already paid considerable taxes locally and could not be taxed more. He discussed the economic woes in America and argued that this unpopular tax could never be enforced, even if Parliament elected to send a standing army to enforce it. He further argued that Parliament could raise money through external duties, but that the colonists would not accept internal taxes from Parliament. Franklin, of course, knew that the colonists were quite hostile even to external tariffs. His private correspondence paints an understanding of much more radical positions in the colonies. It seems that his rehearsed testimony was designed to appeal to those in Parliament inclined to repeal the Stamp Act, but who would not give up the right of Parliament to levy such taxes in the future. Like any good lobbyist, Franklin was concerned about the law's repeal, not furthering some broader philosophical debate. Despite the ministry's efforts, most of Parliament seemed to oppose the bill, since it looked like they were backing down before lawless mobs. The king directly let it be known that he supported the bill, and that was enough to take the air out of the opposition. After the king's intervention, Parliament passed the Declaratory Act and the repeal of the Stamp Act, with the final passage of both on the same day, March 18, 1766. Both acts passed overwhelmingly with large majorities. The laws also passed the House of Lords and received the king's approval, taking effect on May 1, 1766. Shortly after passage, Rockingham passed another bill voiding any penalties owed under the Stamp Act during the six months that it was technically in force. If Parliament wanted to put all that unpleasantness behind them, the last thing they needed was to make a martyr out of some merchant or lawyer over a penalty of a few pounds. Similarly, in 1767, when the Massachusetts Assembly passed a bill to reimburse victims of mob riots for the destruction of their homes and property, it included a provision pardoning all those involved in the riots. Some in London raised concerns about the pardoning of these criminals, but in the end, the Privy Council let the bill become law without objection. Best to act like the Stamp Act never happened. Repeal of the Stamp Act met with near-universal celebration throughout the colonies. Leaving aside concerns over the Declaratory Act, which we'll talk about a little more next week, everyone seemed overjoyed at the news from London. Cities held parades and festivities not only that year, but celebrated it as an annual event for the next decade. Government officials were also relieved to be free of the tension between instructions from London and angry mobs threatening their homes. 
The Sons of Liberty, feeling empowered, became a permanent fixture throughout the colonies. They would continue to organize and coordinate against future threats to their freedom. Now, Grenville may have lost his fight over repeal, but he was absolutely right that the colonists took this repeal as evidence of weakness. Colonists were much more willing to push back against unpopular legislation from Parliament, including continued opposition to the trade restrictions and duties. Next week, we'll see that things get better for a while, but tensions between Britain and her colonies remain. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.